Did you know that you can get this same great episode of the Rural Woman Podcast ad-free? I get it. Listening to ads during a podcast isn't always my favorite either, but in order to keep the lights and coffee pot on here at the Rural Woman Podcast Studios, they are necessary. I am so grateful to each and every one of my sponsors, but if you yourself would like to skip the ads while supporting the show, consider joining me over on Patreon. Patrons of the Rural Woman Podcast get ad-free episodes starting at Tier 5 on their podcast player of choice each week, plus some other great benefits. Find out more by heading to the link in today's show notes to learn how you can become a patron through Patreon. Hi, I'm Caitlin Dubin, and this is the Rural Woman Podcast. I'm a first-generation farmer who married into agriculture. Born and raised in a city, I was so unfamiliar with where my food came from, but I was determined to figure it out. Through my journey into agriculture, I saw women who were strong but humble, often taking a back seat. To me, these women were leaders who deserved a seat at the table. I created the Rural Woman Podcast to share the voices of women in an industry whose stories often went untold. The rural entrepreneurs who live and breathe their work, full of grit and pride. We come here to share our stories, to be in community with each other, to be challenged and inspired, but most importantly, to be celebrated and to be heard. We may not all live, farm, ranch, or homestead the same, but we are all connected. We are rural women, and our stories are worthy of being told. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. Today, you'll meet Elise Ferguson. Elise is a professional web developer, movie theater manager, master gardener, homesteader, mom, candy store owner, beginning farmer, and a person with too many irons in the fire in southwestern Minnesota. Today, Elise will share with us the process and challenges of expanding their family farm. Before we get to today's episode with Elise, I wanted to share with you that we are coming up on our four-year anniversary of the Rural Woman podcast, and to celebrate, I will be releasing a special Maybe You Can Relate episode in the month of March to celebrate four years behind the mic and sharing the stories of incredible women in agriculture. So if you would like to hear that upcoming episode, as well as the previous episodes of my solo podcast, Maybe You Can Relate, you can join us over on Patreon at tier 10 or higher to get that download on your phone automatically when it comes out at the end of the month, as well as extended episodes, previous episodes, all of the good stuff that's over on Patreon. So if you are interested in supporting the stories of women in agriculture through the Rural Woman podcast, you can head on over to wildrosefarmer.com and learn more about how you can become a patron through Patreon. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Elise. Elise, welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for joining me today. I, I feel like I'm sitting with a friend just having a chat. Yeah. <laughs> and we get to record it and other people get to hear it. So it's a weird flex I have. Lucky them. <laughs> it is is very true. So for those who are unfamiliar with you, give us your background, tell us who you are, where you're from, and how you got your start in agriculture. Well, let's see. It's kind of a long, weird roundabout story. I actually grew up in Wisconsin, right on the border. So what I thought was a small town, it was almost a suburb of Minneapolis-St. Paul. So I didn't have any farm background or anything. And I ended up taking a horticulture class in the shop hallway. So the high school had, you know, that hallway where all the shop classes are. And you only go in that hallway if you're a shop person. And I wasn't a shop person. I was a band person, debate, speech, dance line, you know, that kind of thing. But I don't know why I think I had it must have had an open hour. So I took horticulture. And because there was only a few of us, the 
teacher for the horticulture class was also the FFA coach, director, leader, whoever, you know, whatever they call it. And he needed people. He needed bodies. He specifically needed bodies for the floriculture competitions. So he roped us in, me and a, another gal that were in the class, and we got our purple jackets and went to like state or something like that. And he sent us to national convention. <laughs> it was very whirlwind. We don't know what we're doing. I, I know what some flowers are. So it, it worked out. I mean, we did fine and it was weird and accidental and not really anything I ever thought I would have been involved in. Part of it also included judging cows on a piece of paper. Like they'd give you a bunch of pictures of cows and you had pic- zero preparation ahead of time. Just pick your favorite cows (laughs) don't have no clue how that what I picked if it was good or not but so it was a it was a weird sort of foray into sort of the more agriculture stuff but you know we had had gardens in our yard you know flowers on the border and things like that but my parents weren't really into gardening a whole lot my grandmother knew what every flower was she could identify everything so there was that. And then, you know, fast forward, went to college for chemical engineering and I was going to go to law school, decided that was a ridiculous idea. I didn't want to go to school for three more years and then make no money and work all the time. So I had always done computers. And so I just said, well, I'll just, I'll just work in computers. So I started working in computers. And then by that point, you can't, you know, that was sort of around the dot-com stuff, you know, early early 2000s. And it was really hard to think of going backwards as far as salary at that point. I was paid student loans and my salary was really good. And I was doing something that I knew how to do. And it was sort of a hobby. And I still was of the mindset of like, why is this a job? Because anybody can do this, right? So I just, I kept up with that. But I met my husband and his family was from the complete opposite side of the state, nearly the South Dakota border. So we're in Southwestern Minnesota and his family was farmers. He left, he was a photographer, went to school and and was working in photo and video. And we lived in the cities and we got married and all that. And we'd go home on the weekends to his home and farm on the weekend, you know, harvest and and planting and stuff like that. But nothing major because you can't save farming for the weekend. So if there was something to do, we'd do it. If there wasn't, we wouldn't. It wasn't like a thing. And he never really expected to ever get into farming, maybe until it was an emergency. But when we had kids, he decided that he would like to move back to the farm town when the kids started school. He didn't want the kids to go to school in the big city. So we ended up buying, we actually had purchased a piece of land from his great uncle, but it was on the edge of town and it was still zoned agriculture, but it was surrounded by houses. And the more we thought about it, the more we figured that it's going to change. As soon as it changes ownership, they're going to say, nope, it's residential now and you can't have your horse, you can't do whatever. So we sat on it for a little while. And meanwhile, his grandmother went into the nursing home. So we ended up buying her place, which was just right outside of town. It's just uh, 30 acres, about maybe 12, I think is the building lot, then the tillable around it. So we purchased that and we moved here. So now we live at a teeny tiny little ranch style home with three kids and way too much stuff. And the good part is I've added chickens and cats and dogs and I've got my horse still. <laughs> so it has expanded, but we were still working. I'm still working in web development and my husband is still doing freelance photography and videography and his father still farms, despite saying that he's retired, and his brother farms. Well, recently it came up that one of the properties that my father-in-law rents or has been renting for years, the owner died and he had a contract, you know, for five years he could keep renting it. And the family said, you know, you can be the first one to buy this if you, if you want this land, but it's 300 some acres or something like that. You know, he's already farming quite a bit and it's a it's a chunk of change to buy 300 acres right right now so he came up with a brilliant idea that my husband and I start farming like officially farming because the tillable around our house he just farms my father-in-law just farms it you know we just go out and look and my husband will you know help and stuff when they need it but he's 
still working, you know, jobs here and there. So it's hard to like guarantee that he's going to be around when they need something. But he's, you know, he does quite a bit of of planting and harvest, but, and I've been roped into tillage and whatnot. And I haven't done it in, since we had kids. I don't get put in the tractor quite as often because apparently someone's got to watch the kids. I guess that's me, but they're getting older. I keep, I keep threatening to send the kids into the tractor, but we'll see how that goes. So last year we, he comes in to me and he says, how do you feel about a really big purchase? Like, and we do a lot of other things in our life. And at that moment, my thought was he's buying more video games because we own a, an arcade and he likes video games. We've got like 30 arcade games in our basement and you know, it's a, there's no cars in our garage. It's all video games. And I thought, Oh God, what did he find now? Well, no, he wanted to buy land. So I'm like, okay, I guess that sounds like a good idea maybe. And so they decided that we would buy 180 acres, like 188 or something. And then the, my brother-in-law would buy another 120 or something like that. And then there's another 80 that was like disjointed and my father-in-law would buy that. So everybody kind of went about their ways and they said, oh, well, you guys could get a new farmer loan. I'm like, okay, that sounds great. So they started working on that. And now apparently we're farmers. So, and well, <laughs> and everything else, <laughs> and everything else on top of that. So, from accidentally becoming an FFA member to accidentally kind of becoming new farmers, that is basically a, a full full turnaround for you. Going back to the start, so you mentioned that your grandmother had been into gardening and into flowers and things. Did you? learn from her or was it more later in life that you kind of developed your own love of gardening? You know, I think I I learned not so much in the like, let's sit down, let me teach you things way, but just me asking her, oh, well, what's that flower? That one looks new or, you know, that sort of thing. And it was sort of one of those like interests, but it was kind of back burner, you know, like it was something you're interested in, but everything else is going on and there's not really time to like do something, you know, you live at home, you're going to college, you're doing whatever, you know, you can't have an, a, a garden in your apartment. And, but I'd always go out to her house and visit her and, you know, we'd walk around the garden, around the yard and stuff like that. And, you know, see all of her crazy methods of keeping the deer from eating her tulips and whatnot. So, so all the things she tried, none of the things that worked, but so I think, you know, just that exposure, I think was probably where that interest came from. Yeah, for sure. So take us back to when you and your husband started your family and knowing that he wanted your family to be raised rurally, essentially, and moving to the small town where he's from and everything. What what kind of changes did you go through uh, when it came to that big move? You know, I had already been working remotely. And so that wasn't a big change. I mean, in fact, that was beneficial because the plan was to move to this small town and we would still maintain our big city salaries. So that was kind of nice. We were, we were moving into a house that we bought outright. We didn't have a mortgage or anything. So, so we felt like we were really getting into this the right way. You know, there was no debt. We were just, you know, doing this thing, you know, we had to downsize and whatnot. And I think the, probably the biggest like change was the lack of just resources is, you know, like we were in the city when my, and I felt a little bad about this with subsequent children, but like my first, my oldest son, like he'd do swimming lessons in the winter and he'd, you know, go to karate class and he did gymnastics class and all this sort of stuff. And, and then my middle child, he, he was still a baby when we moved. So, I mean, he had baby swimming lessons and then, then that was it. And then my daughter was born out here and, and you know, that's the, you can swim for two weeks in the summer and that's it. <laughs> like if you want to do gymnastics, you have to drive 30 miles if you want to do whatever. So I felt bad thinking that the one child had more opportunities than the other kids did. But I think the longer you, you live out here, then 
the more you sort of, you you know, you adapt, obviously, and, and those things are really important. And, you know, during COVID, when all the stuff was canceled, let me tell you, that was wonderful. Not having to drive kids to all the things and do the things, you know what, I'll, we can just sit around and play in the yard. We'll, we'll have just as much fun and not have to yeah. go places. Well, and the kids that re- like grew up rurally, I hear the stories that my husband shares about his childhood and the things that they did for fun out here versus what I got to do with the quote resources. Um, you know, they're just different. Not One's not better than the other. And it's just kind of all in how you take it. And I know with kids who, you know, are pulled from one area and put into another, they're pretty adaptable. And I feel like kids can find what they can find their joy a lot faster and easier than the adults in their lives can sometimes. Yeah, I for sure. My oldest is, has never once said, I'm so lucky I got to do karate when I was four. You know, I mean, I don't, heck, he probably doesn't even remember doing it. He doesn't care. I think we have, our situation is is very unique and kind of odd. We we run a movie theater. We own a candy store. We have an arcade. I mean, that's not something even any, you know, many kids in the city would have. That's just weird. It's different. And so they have a completely unique experience, I think, growing up with this. Plus, you know, plus the farm stuff. But there is definitely a difference between the stories I hear about what my husband did as a child. And he's very protective of the kids. I'm I'm like, yeah, go outside and play. I have to work. And he's a little bit more like, oh, are you keeping an eye on them? I'm like, well, what are they going to do? They're outside playing in the woods. Big deal. Like, I mean, when you were a kid, you would save your money, buy fireworks, and then shoot them at each other for fun. So my kids climbing a tree in the backyard seems seems fine. <laughs> but he's yeah, so, relatively safe there. But he's yeah. like, but I know what they could get into because I'm from out here. I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, I'll give you that. But like, they can have a little bit of a, a longer leash. It's fine. <laughs> so that, that part's funny to me. I'm like, you survived. You're fine. They'll be fine. He's not, they, you know, he drove tractor when he was like five years old or like the gravel truck or something like that, you know, and, and we had my son, we've got a golf cart and my husband put him on the golf cart and he just needed him to drive through the gate. Like he opened the gate, drive through. Well, so my son drove through the gate and then just kept going. (laughs) My husband's like, stop, stop. So, you know, and and he was, you know, probably six or seven at that point. So he's a, a little older, but not, you know quite as experienced I guess but you know things it times are different you know you don't we don't have to get that stuff done you know like when when my husband was five and driving the gravel cart it's because it was his dad and him picking rocks and it had to be done it had to be done now and there's no one else around so here just drive straight you'll be fine (laughs) you know it was sort of a necessity whereas now you know we've got so many other you know, people and things to help that you don't have to have your five-year-old driving the gravel cart too often. Right. Too often. Unless they want to help, right? Or unless, you know, it's something that they enjoy doing, then they get to help and learn and have those experiences. And, you know, to be a kid whose parents have a candy store, a movie theater and an arcade and all of the things, like that sounds pretty cool to me. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder, you know, in 20, 30 years, like what they'll have to say about that, you know, looking looking back on that kind of thing. So tell us more about your current operation, what you're growing there, what you're raising, all of the good things. So we're doing uh, corn, soybeans, alfalfa, and I'm sure wheat will get thrown in there at some point. Right now, like our, our 188 acres is split up into basically two sort of fields. So mostly bean and corns, but I think there's some alfalfa strips in there but so yeah that's what that's what we do the in-laws also do cattle beef cattle so all the good stuff so when you reached out to me Elise this was back in October of last year I think when you you put your name forward you wanted to come on here and share your story with me and chat with me which I'm so grateful for you were in the process of applying for your young farmer loan. 
So I want to dive into that and what that process looked like for you. And obviously the outcome was positive, but from the sounds of it, it was pretty difficult to get that accomplished. So take us back to the start. Your your husband comes home and says, hey, would you like to spend a lot of money <laughs> and uh, <laughs> to where you are today? Yeah. So so he had, you know, luckily his, his father was aware of these loans and things and said, oh, well, you guys you guys probably meet the requirements to get the USDA beginning farmer loan. And there's a, there's a few in the end, it ended, it's ended up being, I think it's a beginning farmer loan and I think it's a down payment loan. And then the remainder of it was just a credit union, you know, fill in the, fill in the gaps kind of loan. So it's like the FSA and then the USDA, something like that. I, all the detail at that point, I was just like, it was a blur. So there were so many numbers and, you know, pay this person, do that, get this. Oh, it was a, so I don't know. I definitely do not know the numbers right now, but I know uh, some of the requirements for the USDA beginning farmer loan, you had to fill out an application, obviously. And some of the things on there were like, it, like you had to write basically an essay of why you wanted to be a farmer and how you Base, you know, why you would be a good farmer, I guess. I, kind of strange, you know, sort of like a job interview. And you had to have so many years of experience farming, which to me, that contradicts the whole beginning farmer part of it. But within 10 years, you had to have so many years of experience and you had to get like references from people that would, you know, basically back you up on the fact that, yeah, you have experience farming. So, I mean, we kind of went back and forth on like, does it count that he helped his dad farm when he was a kid? I mean, does, does that count? Does it, when we had first purchased that other plot of land sort of in town, it had, it had like 11 acres of tillable attached to it. And so we were, we bought that with his brother and his brother would farm it, but it would be half in our name. I and mean, we, we'd pay half the inputs and, and get half the outputs for it. And basically labor was free, I guess, because 11 acres, it's like five minutes to, to plant or harvest that. So, so, I mean, we had that sort of qualification, I guess, that we had done that, but they also wanted to make sure you had farm management experience and it just, you had to provide them like a list of all your equipment. And if you didn't have your own equipment, you had to have a list of all the equipment that you could borrow from someone. And then that person had to sign and say, yes, they can borrow this. They had to have kind of a contract as far as like in exchange for whatever, you know, whether it was monetary or if it was like in our case with, with my father-in-law, he was going to let us use his equipment and we would in turn help him harvest and plant his other fields. So it was like a labor exchange kind of thing. But I mean, we got to the point where you fill out this stuff and send it in and we were back and forth, back and forth. I don't, you know, maybe 10 times because, oh, you forgot to put uh, a baler on there and we see that you have some alfalfa on this property. Okay. Yes. Yes. We are borrowing a baler too. You know, it was very, you know, very nitty gritty, like all the specifics, which I'm sure that's important somehow, but at some point you're like, we're borrowing the, all of our equipment from an established farmer. You know, if we forget to write down Baylor, he's not going to not let us use the Baylor. It's, you know, kind of a given, but, and in the time that it took us to get all this paperwork filled out back and forth, back and forth, the rates for the non-government portion of the loan just kept going up and up. They didn't lock that in. So what started out as a fairly decent, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like five, six, seven percent was just getting up there at nine percent. And I think after we finally locked ours in, it just kept going up. So I mean it's it's outrageous. Luckily the, you know, the government part of the loan is in the like like one and a half to two and a half percent range or something like that. So uh, that was locked in. That that doesn't change over they're dragging their feet, I guess. But addition to filling all these forms, we also have to take a farm management course for three years. So you have to enroll in that through the college and, you know, pay tuition. So in order to get a loan, we have to pay in tuition for a farm management course that we have to take. And I, 
you know, I'm sure the course is great and it's going to be helpful and whatnot, but it just seemed like I could walk in and get a car. I could get a house, but you know, if you're trying to promote agriculture and get more farmers and get more people into farming, making them jump through this many hoops seems like a lot during this whole, like, are you approved or are you not approved time? I'm like, frankly, if they don't approve us, I am fine with it. We will just not farm because this is a nightmare. <laughs> and then, you know, meanwhile, now I'm like, just what I need now is now I have to worry about, you know, okay, I've got my garden. I worry if it's going to hail or something, but that's, that's my hobby. You know, that's not a big deal. Now I'm going to be out there with like an umbrella, like, like running around in the, in the 180 acres, tr trying to prevent hail from destroying all my corn or something, because unless this evens out, you know, like I'm kind of trying to think of it as a like, hobby that pays for itself and hopefully doesn't cost us more money because I still have a job. My husband still does freelance. Let's this farm thing. Someday it'll be maybe our only income, but right now I just want to break even pay off the loan and not go crazy trying to do it. <laughs> yeah. Like you had said previously, it is for an industry that is starving for people and, you know, an aging population of farmers, it sounds like it's a really difficult task in order for people coming into the industry that want to farm. And like, I, I can understand the argument that if there's people interested in it, they should, you know, work for somebody else or whatever it is. And that's fair to learn from other people by working for other people and that sort of thing. But I also think of, you know, it's no surprise that there are folks out there with farming practices that maybe aren't the best and could be better. And there's new people and new ideas and new technology that's being introduced every day into our industry that people want to use and want to improve things when it comes to environment, people management, soil management, all of these things. But the amount of barriers that people have to get into farming, it's it's rather frustrating. And for the people who, you know, lack the finances to be able to just walk in and do it, and, you know, for the people who would want these beginner farmer loans and have nobody in agriculture, how how would they do that if they don't have things that they could borrow from family members or from neighbors? So it's to me, it's it's a question that I don't have the answer to of how how do people start farms now? Because I literally I have no clue how people would walk in off the street and say I would like to buy this however many number of acres and make it into something that produces food for people. Yeah, I mean, you know, and there are equipment loans. Like we could get it a we could get loans as beginning farmers to purchase equipment. But when you think about it, where is that line between enough land to make purchasing the equipment worth it? You know, if you're going to buy a combine, even if you buy a used one off of Facebook for 30, 40, 50 grand, you you need hat, you need a bean head, you need a corn head, you need a a digger, you need a tractor to pull the digger, you need a planter, you need, you know, so that's a giant investment. You can't just buy 30 acres and then farm and then make your money back. You're, it's not going to happen because you have to have enough tillable that your outputs are going to be enough to pay for your inputs plus all your equipment plus, you know, fuel and, you know, maybe workers or whatever. And, you know, you might want to eat once in a while. Or pay your electricity. I don't know, <laughs> like crazy ideas. But so at some point, you can't say we'll start small because what do you, you could get your horse out there and pull your, you know, single bottom plow. <laughs> but what do you, there's not a lot in between that and, you know, a used old 50 grand combine that and, and all the other equipment that you need. So it's, it, it felt like we're starting so big, but we're we're not starting big. You know, 180 acres is is not that much. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, right? Right. So I don't understand. And like we had talked before, like you're you had some 
feedback a while ago about being a farmer and, and well, everything was your family gave it to you or your husband's family. And it's like, well, whose didn't? Like if you're under 80 years old and you're a farmer, I can guarantee you a hundred percent that someone helped you along the way. Yeah. Maybe they didn't hand you 180 acres of land for free, but sure as heck, if your combine broke down, your neighbor is going to come over and help you or you're, you know, I mean, there's no farmer out there that, that just walked into it with nothing in their pockets other than, you know, some money to buy the land and then just did it by themselves. And anybody who says that they did is not very thankful for the people that actually did help them. Yeah. It's, it's a weird place to be in and I, I can hear it from both sides. And when I hear folks who like to define other people by roles and conceptions that they have versus, you know, how a person defines themselves. I always take it more on, on the chin and saying it's more of a them problem than a me problem. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's really discouraging and it's really frustrating, especially, you know, when we talk about the aging population of farmers and how we don't have enough people to grow food to feed other people and animals and all of these things. And then there's just all of these extra barriers that make it close to impossible for people to succeed, whether that's financially or with resources or anything. But then also just the notion that, well, you're not a real farmer because, right? It's like, well, what defines a real farmer then? Because you know, there are real farmers who own the land and the equipment and all of these things, and they don't operate the farms themselves. They live somewhere else or they have people that work for them that do these jobs or whatever it is. And whatever the case may be, as long as it's working for them and their operations are viable, like I consider you to be a farmer. Mm -hmm. So the definition of a farmer is different for absolutely everyone. And if you you know, proudly tell me that you are a farmer. I'm not going to question that. Like what, what right do I have to question you? Yeah. And I think that's, that's maybe a mindset that I have a hard time with myself. Prior to this, I I run the farmer's market in town. Am I a farmer because of that? I have a garden. I have things I sell from my garden at the farmer's market. I would be hesitant to say I was a farmer. Even now, I've signed all the papers, my butt's on the line for the loan. I may not be out there putting the seed in the ground, but I sure as heck do all the books. <laughs> and my full-time job is the thing that will, you know, support us while we do this sort of thing. So does that make me not a farmer or a far, you know, like... The beautiful thing is you get to define that for yourself because... Nobody should do that for you. And if they do, I think it says more about them than it ever does about you. So, and you know, there's been the age old fight of, well, am I, am I a farmer or am I just the farmer's wife or whatever? And you know what, if you call yourself a farm wife and that's, you know, the way that you present yourself and want to identify yourself as, I'm happy for you because you got to choose that for yourself. But if you grow food or help in growing food, whether that's through your salary or whether that's raising your children and keeping your household and whatever it is, and you call yourself a farmer, you absolutely are a farmer because you support in growing food. And that's, you know, it's, it was never that easy for me in the beginning to have that mindset. And it's definitely taken time. It's taken falling on falling on my face or having people be mean to me on the internet or whatever it is, right? And it's unfortunate that as women, we have to go through that and we have to go through the judgment. But I think a lot of the times, and I'm guilty of this for myself, I think a lot of the judgment that we portray being out there is judgment that we put on ourselves versus the judgment we've gotten from anybody else. Because I don't know about you, but uh, the mean girl that lives in my head is typically meaner to me than she is anybody else. So mm-hmm. I can I can see where the definition of farmer too is gonna it, it's gonna have to change just systemically because 
the way that we farm now is not the way we farmed 20 years ago and it won't be the way we farm in 20 years. And, you know, talking with, with my father-in-law who's in his late seventies and, and other people, it's, it's definitely going to technology and that's stuff that like that generation is a little bit hesitant and, and, you know, they, they do it cause they have to, but maybe they don't understand it or they don't care to understand it. Just get it done. It works. I don't have to worry about it. Whereas coming up, I think you're going to get more people into farming because of conservation, because of technology, because of not because I want to be a farmer or my dad was a farmer and his dad was a farmer, but I mean, some of the, some of the technology that they just have in the, in the fertilizers, like the sprayers and stuff, the fact that it can, it takes a sample as it's driving, it knows exactly what it needs at that one you know, one foot by one foot square needs this specific fertilizer. This one foot by one foot square needs something different. And I mean, that's, that's computer programming. That's chemistry. That's like, that's a million other things. It's not just your, you got your field, you got your dirt, looks good. We do some tests, maybe like whatever test you could do prior to sending it, maybe send it to U of M or something. And well, this didn't work this year. Let's try something different next year. It's a lot more. It's a lot less time spent in the field, I think, and more time at a computer or something like that. And you're still farming, but it's going to shift. So, yeah, exactly. And like you said, it's going to be different 20 years from today than it was 20 years ago yesterday. And to me, that's exciting. And that just gives us opportunity to learn and to grow and, you know, to be able to do things differently and, you know, different can be scary sometimes for some people, but I see it as an opportunity for some exciting changes in our industry, so. You have heard me tell you all about the amazing benefits that come with being a patron of the Rural Woman Podcast through Patreon, but I wanted to share with you a few testimonials from the patron gang themselves. Patron Marina writes, I decided to become a patron of the Rural Woman podcast because I felt a deep connection to all of these women. Being new to the agricultural world, I didn't have a lot of knowledge about other aspects of the egg world. This podcast opens my eyes to how women near and far grow and succeed in their roles. It makes me feel like I'm part of a bigger picture and I feel as if I have the support of all of these women as I support this podcast and in return sharing their beautiful stories. Join Marina in supporting the stories of women in agriculture through the Rural Woman podcast starting at $2 a month on Patreon. Visit wildrosefarmer.com slash Patreon to learn more. We talked about some of the significant challenges that you've had in growing your farm and, you know, whether that's months and months of paperwork or rising interest rates or all of the things. But I want to ask, what are some of the biggest wins that you want to celebrate when it comes to farming and, you know, growing your operation? Well, I think just, you know, finishing the loan, (laughs) signing those papers, we're done with that. One thing that was interesting to me is with this whole... um, Mexico proposing not not taking GMO corn and you know my my father-in-law's operation is is large and so you know we we do roundup ready corn or or something similar I don't know specifically if they do roundup but and with that news you know knee-jerk reaction would be like you know be mad about it and whatever and and what really surprised me and made me kind of excited was that he he had already heard about there's a there's a plant or there's an elevator somewhere not too far away that that is paying a premium for non-gmo corn like he's interested and looking into getting some non-gmo corn and doing that so i mean the the willing the willingness to shift to something that i i think typically people would not want to just change everything he's he had said you know the field's already really good there's no weeds it's great we don't you know we don't need roundup we don't need at this point like yeah we could totally do non-gmo corn and or beans or whatever you know whatever the case may be so just that that whole like already seeing a change in that generation 
that I didn't expect, I think is a win. Cause I am personally, I'm more like, well, this would be cool. Let's try something, you know, well, let's do this instead. And I'm not for or against, you know, GMO or, or not GMO, I, I, whatever. So, but I am for doing something new and, you know, trying something new. And if it works great, then awesome. And, you know, I now have a giant loan. So if there's a premium on something, I'm I'm all for that. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Well, and that is a win because there are a lot of people from any generation, including ours, that, you know, can be stubborn to change. And like you said, if something is working, why change it? Well, why not change it and see if we can do something better? And I don't know. I was told a long time ago that, you know, we'll try it this year. And if it doesn't work, well, I guess we'll try something new next year. We get to do it all again next year. And, you know, that's a pretty big privilege flex on on our parts. But, you know, it's you have to try new things in order to grow. And there there's no growth in comfort. So if you're comfortable doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different huge results, like... I think that's like the definition of insanity. I've uh, heard that, yeah. So. <laughs> so one other thing that you've recently added to your plate on top of all of the other things that you already do, Elise, is launching a podcast. So tell us about your newest venture into podcasting. Yeah, because I have about five minutes a week where I'm not doing everything else. I decided it would be great to have a podcast. And it kind of, I mean, it's, it's a selfish endeavor because we started, we got thrown into our business of running a movie theater in 2021. And last year we opened a candy store and they're just, to me, I didn't have like resources or like a sounding board for like starting a small business or running a small business in a small population rural area. I mean, it's not... You could listen to all the podcasts, you know, all the boss babe this and that and the other thing, but they're all very pointed at businesses that you're looking for a large audience or or whatever. And I thought I I wanted to hear people talk about small towns and how to run a business in a small town. And yeah, there are similarities for sure, but there's also going to be unique things to a rural business than there are to something a little larger. And uh, I like listening to podcasts that have like a discussion feel to them more so than just the, here's how you do X, Y, Z. And it's just me talking for, you know, I could talk for days, but I don't know. I'm sure nobody wants to listen to me do that. So, so um, I thought, well, let's start like a round table sort of discussion podcast. And you know what, if nobody listens to it at the very least, I get to hear, I get to just talk about business with with these other business owners and you know i'm sure there's at least one other person out there that wants to listen to it so it's going to be called the now watch me trip over my tongue the rural retail roundtable and i'm starting to regret that name because it's so hard to say but it fits so there is a trailer out i just wanted to establish you know all the all the things and all the places so it should be on most of the places, Apple, Google, I think, who knows where else, but I'm hoping in March, I'm going to start getting some some discussions going so we can start getting stuff out of there. I, I will 100% promise you it's going to be rough sounding in the beginning, but if you bear with me, maybe it'll be get better. <laughs> but yeah, so that is my latest ADHD endeavor. That's amazing. And For anybody who doesn't uh, start a podcast for a selfish reason, uh, I don't truly believe that that podcast needs to be out there because I can say the same thing for me. I selfishly started the Rural Women podcast for myself because I just wanted to connect with more and more rural women doing amazing things. And very much like you said, if nobody listens to it, hey, at least you get to have some amazing conversations with people. But I can guarantee you there are people out there who are also like, yes, this is exactly what we need. Because like you said, you know, being an entrepreneur in a rural space could have similarities to other entrepreneurs running movie theaters or candy stores in wherever. But 
you know, for those who are in a rural space with a limited population. Yeah, there are different unique challenges and different things. So I am very excited to listen to this and I will, uh, I'll be sure to link everything that I have for the podcast in the show notes. So when it does launch to the worldwide audience that uh, people can find you and connect with you. Sounds great. Are you ready for the rapid fire questions? Now or never, I guess. It, it is. It for sure is. So because I know your love of gardening, I, uh, I focused them on the garden questions. So what has been your favorite thing to grow in your garden? I think it's a toss up between pumpkins and loofah. And the only reason I don't put pumpkins as number one is because the squash vine mowers make me so mad. And I I don't get as many pumpkins as the very first year here. We got so many pumpkins and I didn't even try. We had like 90 pumpkins and it was it was a beginner's luck at that point, I think. (laughs) Um, uh, But I love growing pumpkins. I, I like harvesting pumpkins. And then the loofahs, I, they're just weird. And the fact that they are not a sea creature, but they are a gourd, just blows my mind. And them suckers will grow on the one trellis. They will grow down to the next trellis. They will grow down the road if you if they have enough sun and heat. But they're just fun and weird. I like to grow semi-useless produce. Amazing. Those are, that's the that's the funnest stuff. I know. <laughs> okay, so this is the flip side to that question. What have you grown that has just failed miserably? Tomatoes. I I am not a tomato person. I cannot grow a tomato to save my life. I mean, I can grow a tomato, but there's always something wrong with the tomato, whether it's disease or just they just look horrible or I don't know. I'm just. <laughs> Which is okay. I don't really eat tomatoes like as a tomato. They have to be like made into something, but I like growing them because people like to buy them at the farmer's market. They only like to buy them the month prior to them actually being ripe and ready to go. But you know, that's that's how it always is at the farmer's market. But for some reason, growing them darn things, they just can. And I do it every year. You know, I hate growing them, but I'll do it every year because maybe they'll be better. That's the optimist in you. (laughs) All right. What is the most useful tool for you in your garden? And what could you not live without? Mm. I have a cultivator, I guess you could call it, from the turn of the century or not even this, you know, the century. It's, you know, the big metal wheel with the two handles it looks like it should be pulled by a horse, but it's just self-driven. We got that from my husband's great uncle's collection of too many things. And I love that thing. I don't know. It's it's a lot of work, but I, I love it. It's the best thing. It probably makes you feel like super strong to use that in your garden every year. I'm out there thinking I like to do things the hard way. I got that. I got my stupid like rotary lawnmower thing that is impossible to push if the grass is like more than an inch tall, but I'm out there still trying. I don't, you know, glutton for punishment, I guess. Yeah. I've never understood the work smarter, not harder thing. Like that doesn't (laughs) compute in my brain at all. So (laughs) at least my last question for you is what is the most rewarding part about being a rural woman for you? I think growing up, I didn't have any real discouragement as far as you can't do that because you're a girl. And I feel like the route I'm taking is very much in that same vein of I'm not running around preaching that you can do it because you're a woman, but I'm trying to exemplify that so that my sons and my daughter just have that innate sense that it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter what you're doing, whether it's agriculture or anything else that you, if it's something you want to do, you just do it. So I think being a person in maybe a non-traditional department and just living that is is kind of the the best part of it. Yeah, 
and just being authentically you in no matter what space you're in, right? So that's perfect. You nailed it. For the listeners who would like to connect with you after the show, where can they find you online? Well, my personal Instagram is EGF Brahma Mama, as in Brahma chickens. And there's the rural retail roundtable. Got that right? On all the various things, Instagram and Facebook, probably, I guess. Um, so that's probably... Instagram is probably the biggest one that I'm on right now. I do have a YouTube called Gardening on the Prairie, which is low-budget gardening vlog stuff, mostly because there wasn't a lot of zone for YouTube gardeners, and I was tired of seeing all the beautiful luscious green things in January on all the other YouTubers. I'm like, no, I've got four feet of snow right now, so I'm not interested because I can't start seeds yet. and you already have plants that you're harvesting. So, so I just started that. It's, you know, another, like I said, ADHD project. I hear you. Well, I will be sure to link all of those in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you and start listening to that podcast as soon as it's out. So congratulations on that. And uh, thank you again so much for coming on here and sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast, a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network. The Rural Woman Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a community. A huge thank you to the Rural Woman Podcast team, audio editor Max Hofer, and admin support from Kim & Co. Online. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Sarah Reedner from Happiness by the Acre and Carrie Munven from Laystone Farms. To learn how you can become a Patreon executive producer or other ways to financially support the show, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast to get the latest episodes directly on your playlist. And if you are loving the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts ratings and reviews. You can connect with us on social media at The Rural Woman Podcast and with me at Wild Rose Farmer. One of the best ways you can support the show is by sharing it. Send this episode to a friend or share on your social media. Let's strengthen and amplify the voices of women in agriculture together. Until next time, my friend, keep sharing your story. This week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast is brought to you by the patrons of the Rural Woman Podcast. This amazing group of individuals contribute financially to the Rural Woman Podcast to ensure the stories of women in agriculture hit your earbuds each and every week. Want to join them in supporting the stories of women in agriculture while getting access to extended episodes, patron-only episodes, and other great perks? Head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more about how you can become a patron through Patreon.